Hi, I'm Jeannie Becker. Welcome to Beyond Style Matters. I've spent decades working in fashion's trenches, seen the best and the worst of human style, and have had the opportunity to get up close and personal with some of the world's most intriguing characters. What I've learned about truly great style is that it goes far beyond what we wear. It's about the way we move through the world. On this episode, I speak with actress Kim Cattrall. While many of us fell in love with the fabulous Kim Cattrall via that badass, savvy siren Samantha Jones in the legendary Sex in the City, I've had a girl crush on her since the 80s. I was an entertainment reporter back in those days and awed at how this gorgeous Canadian actress kept surfacing in all these buzzy films like the teen sex comedy Porky's, the wacky Police Academy, and the romantic comedy Mannequin. I had the chance to interview her several times back then and was always wowed by her beauty, intelligence, and drive. By the time she dazzled us all with her unforgettable Sex in the City character, I realized that Kim's brilliant talent knew no bounds, so I wasn't surprised to see her go on to garner rave reviews in a variety of impressive London stage roles. She then exec-produced and starred in HBO's provocative Sensitive Skin. Now Kim returns to network TV in Fox's new series, Filthy Rich, a Southern family drama in which she stars as a Christian TV network host caught in a web of wealth, power, and religion. It's a fun, juicy role that Kim relishes. It's also proof positive that talent, passion, drive, and tenacity can indeed keep you in the game if you're good and grounded. Kim's a sensational 64, and despite some hard knocks, she's living her best life these days with a great attitude and much aplomb. Kim, thank you so much for being on this episode of Beyond Style Matters. I am thrilled to have you on the other end of this line and just uh, so proud of everything you've accomplished. And you're, you're having this incredible act right now. It seems that things are really bubbling up for you in such a major way. How does it feel? It's extraordinary. Uh, I think because I'm dealing with so many other realities, this doesn't seem like a reality. Uh, the story of this uh, of Filthy Rich started last year when we did the pilot, and we thought we'd be airing in September of last year. Of course, that didn't happen. And now we're airing a complete year after the fact, so it feels surreal. Uh, it feels like such a long time ago. I guess because so much is happening in the world on a, on a daily basis that, that, that has your, your focus and your attention. But I look at it, and one of the reasons I said yes to doing a, a network TV show was I wanted to have some fun. At this time, you know, I figure I've got nothing to prove. I just want to be on a set and play somebody outrageous and have fun with uh, a lot of younger actors and some older actors. Uh, and just really enjoyed it. Also, a new experience for me being in the South. I've been to New Orleans, uh, but I never experienced New Orleans. So seven months in New Orleans, I know it it pretty well. And Mm -hmm. I I fell in love with the city 
not just the food or the music, but the people. Uh, they were ter- so welcoming. In terms of the fun factor then, because I know you've said before that you're at a stage of life uh, as me too, me too. Yes. I'm, I'm at that stage of life where you don't want to do something that's not enjoyable. You don't want to work with people that you don't really get off on and you don't want to do an experience just for the sake of doing an experience. Did it deliver on the, fu- when you were actually out there every day on the set, you know, working your buns off, which I'm sure you did, was it as much fun for you as maybe as, as early days of, of TV acting were for you? Well, it was thrilling because uh, I'm also a producer on the show, which was an exciting, uh, you know, advancement and and having a say, not a complete say, but having a voice in those meetings and uh, with my fellow producers and creators. So uh, I felt um, I felt really exhilarated by by that. And and also the the kids in the show are so talented and they're so quick. the whole process is speeded up considerably. I, on you know, Sex and the City, which is my only other series experience, uh, there would be 19-hour days that were that was nothing exceptional. Here, if I did a 12-hour day or a 10-hour day, which is still long, uh, it was very unusual. So I think that was that was planning that was part of it, um, and I, I think the other aspect was that. What working in television right now is, is it speeded up immeasurably. When you consider the kind of uh, journey that you've had from real, you know, I look at you as a, uh, a symbol of empowerment, really, because you did take major control, certainly of your career, uh, when you became a producer of a fabulous series called Sensitive Skin. Uh, and that, I'm sure, was a very big step for you. And it was a a show that really resonated with so many people and was so moving and touching for so many women. It came by at just the right time, I think. How difficult was that for you to take that plunge, to really stand up and say, you know what, I am going to just do my own project in this major way and I'm just going to you know, fearlessly take the plunge? Well, I, I wasn't fearless. I was nervous. And um, I was working in Canada, uh, which, you know, I was so happy to come home to, but I was working with people who work as a, as a unit and I was the new element. And, uh, I was, especially the first season, I think I was holding on to the reins a little too tight because I had a very specific version. I, I spent 10 years trying to get sensitive skin off the ground. And I thought now is the moment. And, uh, when I first saw the original series, the BBC uh, version, I felt that it was ahead of its time. I, it, there were thoughts that I was beginning to have, but over the next 10 years of trying to get it done, that voice was just getting louder and louder about the next chapter of women's lives, my life. And I had all of these questions. And I, I'm, I'm at a point where I can use, I can take the choices that are given to me or create choices for myself. And I decide which road I want to take. And this was a road that just demanded my attention. So uh, the, first, the first year, uh, or the first season, was very challenging because I, I felt that I was not being heard. And most of my collaborators were, collaborators were men. And uh, they had worked together. They'd been very successful together. You know, they met in university. and they. So I, I felt a, a little bit of a loose wheel. And 
at sometimes uh, nervous that my point of view uh, about specifically this this period of time in a woman woman's life that they couldn't fully understand, and their resource was me because <laughs> and other women, you know, who were at that time. Uh, 2013 were were even brave enough to talk about that uh, in in its totality of change and and how you you acclimatize to that change uh, chemically and emotionally and and intellectually. Mm. So much uh, so much heady stuff to get into there. I want to talk a little bit more about how how you have managed to find your way uh, with with such a plomb, or at least that's what it looked like, you know, to uh, so many of us who who love and adore you. Uh, it, it seems always like it may be an easier path than it really is to those that are just looking. But but just talking a little bit now about the superficiality of the business, the, the style part of it, the fashion part of it. The, you know, I know for Filthy Rich, you are working once again with the amazing Pat Field, who you yeah. worked with uh, on Sex and the City and who is just such a wonderful spirit. Uh, yeah. I, I just really adore her. Uh, tell me what that collaboration was really like between a stylist and an actor? Like what, what exactly goes on? What are the machinations of that? Well, with Pat, I, I have, we're such, we're very close still. And um, we know each other very, very well. So there's a shorthand there that uh, I, I so cherish. She actually did not do the clothes for the series unfortunately, because that would have been uh, uh, a, a great joy, again, to work with her. She did the press for it. And I came back to New York just before we started shooting because we were going to begin our first season by doing this big photo shoot with everybody. And I felt, as did Tate Taylor, the creator and executive producer and directed many of the episodes, that we had not found... Margaret Monroe, the character in the pilot. We'd had a costume designer on the pilot who was terrific, but unfortunately she was not well. So she left and there was a lot of chaos involved. And, and that, that can happen. Uh, so I, I called Pat and I said, um, can you do the PR shoot? Can you get all the, you know, the different looks and we can talk about them? I sent her the pilot mm-hmm. and uh, she she called me and she did what friends do she she really laid the ground rule in a very truthful way she said you're not making a documentary about evangelicals this is entertainment you're in the entertainment industry you need sexy you need pizzazz you need showbiz and uh, that's the way she talks, by the way. And, yeah, she uh, does. While smoking a cigarette. <laughs> Brilliant <And> impersonation. <laughs> right. I spent good. a lot of time with her. You're good. Yeah. yeah. I've spent a lot of, lot, a lot of long, long um, uh, fittings with her. And I adore her. And it was, you know, she never even came to the set. I, I took all of those costumes. Some of them were rented. Some of them were borrowed. Some of them were mine, belts, necklaces, earrings, <laughs> you know, you name it. I brought all of this stuff back to New Orleans with me. And that really was the moment where the look came together. And I, I just am so grateful to her for you know, planting my feet on the ground 
and realizing the obvious, which is, uh, I'm not doing a documentary. You know, I, uh, I've got to look a million bucks. I've, I have a, a fan base out there under these kind of circumstances because the show in some ways is comparable to those big, you know, nighttime soaps of the 80s, uh, late 70s, early 80s, which are fun. They're over the top, you know, and I thought, well, if I'm going to inhabit JR territory, let's go for it. So uh, that, that continued on. Uh, I was very much uh, involved with whatever I wore. And sometimes it was uh, sparkles and sometimes it was very, you know, of the manner born and very discreet. So it was fun to have that expression again. And the person who freed me up to do that was... Of course, my friend Pat Field. Uh, so great! What a great journey that. Ah, uh, I can't. I cannot wait to see the show, and I cannot wait to see uh, you shining in uh, in some of those incredible outfits, which I'm sure they are. What does costume ultimately do for an actor? I mean, how vital. Is it to you as a performer to feel just right about what you've got on your skin? It's, uh, you know, in, in England, when I've worked there, especially in theater, um, the set designer is also the costumer. And that's kind of interesting because there's, a, you know, a, 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 a more of a focus immediately. What I find is of the productions mostly that I've done, is that everybody comes together and they look at the model or they talk about the region or they talk about the area. So it becomes, you know, the, the research is like detective work. It's really fun to do that. It's really enjoyable. And you gain so much knowledge about the history of that place and the people in it. And then you got to give it up and let your imagination take over. Yeah. And so for me, what I wear and how I wear it, whether it's restoration comedy or something like Samantha Jones uh, or uh, Margaret Monroe, it has to support the storyline that you're doing, but you have to individually own it. And I find the designers that I've worked with uh, have pushed me even further than I originally was comfortable mm. to a place of not just, uh, you know, an added... Uh, an added bonus to what the character wears, but to part of that character. Every day we get dressed, you know, we're dressing for a character and that character is you. <laughs> how you want to be perceived, uh, you know, how comfortable you feel, who you're going to meet, although now uh, mostly it's just Russ. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> my, my boyfriend. But uh, that, that feeling of being inspired and then finding that comfort zone for however long you're going to play that character, whatever the scene is. Um, mm. and, and, and making that individual, that's, that's very important. Some, some designers see a look, uh, specifically in television, for a character and they just play it to death. I like to mix it up. You know, I want her to be casual when she's in the kitchen cooking and making her mm. room. And I want her to look absolutely spectacular and Margaret 1968 without the sexiness, nobody's as sexy as Anne Margaret, um, just, you know, in her talk show. So it was all of these 
great choices that uh, a really good costume designer can give you and push you a little bit over the limit, which is uh, what Pat did for me. But with, and, you know, it's, it's so interesting because with all you know now and with all you've learned on your journey uh, on stage and, and in front of the camera about costume and about how it's so empowering or has the potential to be, how has that affected you just, you know, in your real life, you know, as a woman with her own personal stash in her wardrobe and and just the way that you approach and embrace style in general? Well, I I like the idea of, I, I remember reading something about Marlena Dietrich and she said that she didn't dress for a man. She didn't dress for herself. She dressed for the image. Her image was everything. And uh, when I was so uh, associated with sexual prowess in my early 40s, which was, you know, new territory for all of us, (laughs) um, and uh, a new character was born out of that, a certain kind of woman, um, when I didn't reflect that, when I was going about my daily life and been caught by a paparazzi or something, people were disappointed because I filled in a collective consciousness of that's who I am and that's what I wear. You know, when I, when I go to bed, I'm in, I'm in silk and draped, you know, with, with silk pillows. And, and when I go out, I'm, I'm driving, a, you know, a, a beautiful Rolls Royce and it's white and, you know, all of these <laughs> fantasies. Um, but I prefer in my life to be very, I'm, I'm, I'm more a comfort girl, gal, you know, growing up in, uh, on Vancouver Island in uh, the fifties and the sixties and the early seventies, you know, that's kind of just in my blood. I like to feel comfortable. I like to feel relaxed. I like to be outdoors. I like to enjoy that aspect where I, I don't know if the characters that I'm known for would be as comfortable in. So I'm very clear. There's a, when they say cut and Kim. And even during the take, I'm Kim, but I'm channeling, I'm representing, I'm inhabiting a different uh, set of circumstances. Yeah. So uh, I think that's a hopefully a healthier way than to live through your fans or to live mm. through your characters. Did it take you a long time to get to that uh, way of thinking? Or is that something that you were just always adamant about? You knew who you were, you felt comfortable in your own yeah. skin? When I came to Universal Studios as one of the last contract players of the contract system of old Hollywood, um, it was 1975. No, excuse me, 1977. And uh I, I came with three dresses and mostly jeans and my hair was dark and short and I was a little chubby in the face and they said, come here. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you. <laughs> Let me introduce, not that I didn't know about high heels, but you know, I'd, I'd done a production of Present Laughter and I could, I could play all of that. But where I felt comfortable was, you know, in my fry boots and my uh, blue jeans, embroidered blue jeans and my little Lee, Lee Riders jacket, you know, and my fringed bag. That's where I felt comfortable. But uh, they kind of took me aside and said, okay, you're going to let your hair grow. You're going to see a dermatologist. You're going to wear high heels. These are the things that you're going to wear. Because I would come into the room for an audition as a contract player, auditioning against the other contract players and every other actress uh, that was available for the work in Los Angeles or New York. And uh, at the beginning, I 
I had a little trouble because I could read the part. They said, she's a wonderful actress. She did a great reading, but we don't know if she looks the part. I, coming out of theater and film that I'd done in Canada, the most important thing is that I could read it. I was the actress. But here I had to look a certain way. I had to act a certain way in the sense of um, makeup and shoes and all of those things. I had to put on the feminine. Um, and that was, that was those days. I mean, it was the cover girl. It was those ads in the back of the magazines where everything was airbrushed and there was a sunset in the background, you know. That was the world that I'd entered. So being a guest shot on Charlie's Angels, I had to look like one of the angels, you know, brushing my hair out and uh, all, of, all of that stuff. I was thrilled at the time to get that work. And I learned a lot. I'd, I'd never been on, you know, film sets or TV sets that big or, uh, so it was, it was a positive in that regard, but it was also an education. How interesting. And I'm sure it was something that, um, you know, that you at times wasn't always that easy for you because I know there were, there were naysayers, right? You work with some people that were probably not that nice to you and not always that encouraging. Or did you? I mean, I don't know. I, I, I heard a story that you said once about someone who, you know, dismissed you from a, a pilot or something because they, they didn't think that you turned them on or do you yes, know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I, you know, I it was like, what? Yeah. Well, how, was how, how, like, it was a CBS ah, pilot. Yeah, it was a CBS terrible, pilot. Terrible, terrible. And, and at you the know time, how- at the time, they just said to me, you know, we're going to go a different way. We're going to cast it differently. I thought, oh, okay. And I was really saddened by it because it was a fun job and uh, the director was very good and the script was, was funny. It was kind of like a moonlighting, but uh, husband and wife. And uh, about six to eight months later when they were redoing the pilot with the new cast, uh, with Alfie, River, Alfie Woodward, uh, she had been replaced, and uh, Art Hindle was playing my leading man. He had been replaced, and I had been replaced. Um, and the director called me, and I was at home, and he said, I just want to tell you, um, this had nothing to do with your, your, uh, your acting. It had nothing to do with how good the show is or this had to do with the head of CBS saying that you didn't give him a stiffy. And, and I, I still, you know, that was, that I couldn't comprehend that, but um, that's, that's what he told me. And I got off the phone and I didn't feel any better. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I am. How does someone as intelligent as you and as sensitive as you and as hip as you and as just freaking gorgeous as you remain grounded and successful in a business that has that kind of shit going on. I mean, a, a business that has that kind of treachery and those kinds of players and that kind of, you know, evil really. And, you know, it is, it's, it's an old story. It's not like the first time we've heard, you know, icky yeah. stuff like this, but how, how did you do it? Well, you know, I don't think it's any different uh, than what other women have gone through. I'm sure you have your stories too. We all have our stories about it. We got through it partly, I think at that time to go into any profession, you had to arm up. I had to put on some armor 
to protect yourself. Well, you've been such such a great example. I mean, to so many women and a whole generation of women that really now, you know, grew up watching you and idolizing you and, and just, and, and it was, was always more than just the fabulous characters that you played. And, you know, I think obviously of the character in Sex and the City that was just so empowering in her own right. But I think people understood what it took to get there. And the fact that you, you know, you came here as a baby to Canada, uh, you know, so child of immigrants, really, yes. um, and, you know, ended up going back to the UK to go to school and learn about the craft at, at such a young age. I think you were, you were about 11 years old when you went yeah. back there. I was, yeah. How did you know and why, or why did you know that that was for you, that whole world of acting? I, I, I didn't want to do anything else. It's, it, you know... It, my friends were sort of hanging out together in the summers. I was in, you know, summer acting camp at Banff or Nelson, BC. I, I loved, I looked forward to it. I felt that I was surrounded by people like me. I felt different. You know, I, I didn't want to become a teacher. I didn't want to become a nurse or a doctor. I didn't, those things didn't appeal to me. I wanted to be around that kind of creativity. And I think when you come from a very rural place, uh, especially at that period of time in the 60s, 50s, 60s, and 70s and Vancouver Island, to go from there at 16 to New York City was a culture shock. But to go from there to London and Liverpool at 11, I'd already been through it. And I realized the advantage of being in that urban setting, which was theater and film and museums and parks. And you could learn anything. It was all available if you were curious about it. And I, I, I have never been fear-based about what I don't know. Um, if I don't know something, I say, I, I don't know. But teach me. Tell me. I, 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 I want to learn. I, you know, someone once said that when you become an expert, it's over. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I, I totally believe that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I think that's, and, and how are you really an expert in anything? It's everything. Yeah changing people's idea of it. I mean, for centuries, people thought the world was flat, you know? Yeah, I mean, yeah. You, you have to, I, I have been as open as I can in that area and, and my appetite was insatiable. So to me, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't any hardship. It wasn't anything that I, you know, had to do in the sense of mate, someone was making me do it. Mm -hmm. My father's enthusiasm, which for, for all of his children, uh, whatever they wanted to, to get into, um, mine was the one that stuck. My uh, other sister wanted to be a singer. She decided she didn't want that. My younger sister wanted to go into equestrian. She didn't decide my brother hockey. And, and my dad was there at six o'clock in the morning to get you up and drive you and and my mom was too, typing out, you know, the speeches that I had to do. So it became something in the family for each of us as for as long as we wanted. As soon as we said, I've had enough. As soon as I graduated from the American Academy, my dad, he took a back seat and said, you're launched. And I said, how long is it going to be before I start working? And he said, I give you seven years. And I got my first job. I thought, wow, that was a quick seven years. <laughs> I'm, wow. I'm, I'm good at this. I like this. Wow. Oh, wow. So, well, it's just it's such proof that uh, it's all about foundation. I mean, if you get that yeah. strong foundation and, you know, yeah, and you can find your wings and, and parents encourage one to find their wings. 
uh, talking about wings and taking flight and, you know, you're in love. I've met your guy. He's fabulous, Russell. And uh, that's so great. It took me a long time to really, you know, get to that place in my life too. I met the love of my life five years ago, like in my 60s. Uh, This has been my best decade yet, I dare say, although I do look forward to the next one. Uh, What about for you? How does... How does this era in your life feel, Kim? It's it started off really rough. Um, uh, the thing that uh, the big chord change for me was uh, experiencing loss, and um, uh, I lost my my dad in 2012 and my brother in uh, 2017. So those big holes in my life have have uh, have changed me somewhat. I've been, and also meeting Russell, my partner, uh, it's a feeling of um, also making choices differently, um, taking challenges a step at a time instead of saying, yes, I have someone else to consider in their life now. It's not just mine. And uh, spending as much time as I can with my mom, who's 91, who's not going to be around longer. And, um, you know, that, that... the, the choice to go back to Vancouver Island, where I grew up and I love so much, was uh, was a was a turning point, and I think it was uh, I made it in my uh, late fifties, and I think that it paved the road to open up to meet my partner, and also to start to relax and enjoy what I built. You know, sometimes you're so busy doing that you're not enjoying or experiencing. And when we're, you know, we're, we're sitting out, we're looking out at the incredible view on Vancouver Island and the ferry and the sky and the sunsets. And you think now is the time, you know, to just lay down the staff a little bit, just take a (laughs) breath. I have, I have the partner to do it with. I have the place that I love and feel at home. So um, it, I, I think you have to listen, as you did, at this point in your life, where that happiness lies and, and make that your priority. I was just, you just took the words right out of my brain. I was just thinking that, yeah, priorities. Uh, ever uh, you regret that priorities were placed in different uh, places at one time or another? Or you're pretty cool with how it's gone. I, you know, I, I can't change it. Um, I wish, you know, I, I think there's, when you lose someone to suicide, there's always that question in your mind, if only, if only, if only I'd called him back, if only I'd, you know, wrote that letter, if only I'd showed up at that occasion, I missed him, you know, I, I could have, and I, and I think for people like myself, like yourself, who get things done, you know, there's, it's very difficult to be left that hole where you can't you, you can't ever change you can't you can't reverse that there's there's no way to fix it there's no way other than time so you have to allow yourself to grieve and um and also when you're ready you know become active in reaching out to other people about mental health and uh, we're so we're so focused on physical ill health because you can see it. And, uh, you know, the, the shocking thing about my, my brother was that you would never think that he was depressed. You just would never imagine. It in the, in, 
a hundred tomorrows that he would ever be somebody who would uh, opt out uh, in that way. But that was what he felt. That's where he was. So um, getting older brings you wisdom and it also does bring regrets, but uh, time heals, hopefully. Yeah. And living in the moment uh, too, something that's so important. Although yeah. I know that you're, a, I think you're a, a dreamer. I, I know you're certainly a visionary. Uh, you certainly, you know, have carried through on so many projects that have taken you so long to see them come to fruition. Yeah, but you've been, sure. you, you, you know, you're just so uh, so ardent, staunch. You're dedicated. You're loyal to your vision. Um, how does it look if you look into your little crystal ball for you? The next, I don't know, five years, do you, are, are there projects on the back burner that you'd really love to start uh, serving up? I, I like to read, and I'm reading with the intent of finding stories that I'd like to tell. Um, I'm also more and more aware of working out questions that I have and continue to have about being female and being in my 60s and uh, ageism and relationships at this stage and choice of you know not having a family and not being uh, a wife and mother uh, all of those questions that you know come to you at different decades in your life at different times in your life stages of your development uh, there was a great book by Esther Harding uh, about a woman's development. And uh, it, it really helped make me feel not so alone. And I think gave me more of more courage to uh, produce something like sensitive skin because I, I felt that in asking, I had no answers for really anyone, but I want to pose the question so other women who are thinking about it might be moved in some way to share more of what what they're dealing with, what what questions they have, what challenges they're having. Um, we're both fortunate enough to live lives where, you know, we're we're not just surviving, we're we're still growing and we're still blossoming and we're we're still out there <laughs> doing our thing. Thank you for uh, for being out there doing your thing and for giving us so much of your light and your love. You are an extraordinary person. I just feel so blessed. You know, someone has got to interview you for your show. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you can me. do that on your yeah. podcast. <laughs> you know, you, you, you shone, shone a light for me very early on in the fashion industry and, and really just made everything user-friendly and accessible and bringing all of those cast of characters at the time, you know, it was, it was thrilling to, to watch you globetrotting and, and talking to these, you know, Valentino and all of these amazing designers. Yeah. A golden, a golden time, a golden age uh, it, that is no more sadly, but, uh, but I hope to keep telling those stories. So uh, thanks for the vote of confidence. Uh, Kim, you're the best. Kim Cottrell, thank you so much for being on this episode of Beyond Style Matters. Anytime you need me, I'm there. Thanks for listening. You can catch me Thursday evenings on TSC's Style Matters. And new episodes of Beyond Style Matters will be coming at you each and every week. 
Till next time, I'm Jeannie Becker.